You're listening to Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's irregular podcast about all things science fiction and fantasy. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this show, as we enter Doctor Who's 50th anniversary year, I'm looking at a radio drama series tangentially connected to the franchise. The Scarifiers is a horror black comedy series with new instalments broadcast every year on BBC Radio 4 Extra and also released on CD. And they concern the adventures of an elderly horror writer and his retired police sidekick as they investigate supernatural crimes and occurrences in 1950s Britain. The cast includes Terry Malloy, better known as Doctor Who's Davros, Nicholas Courtney, a.k.a. Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, and after the latter's untimely death in real life, David Warner, star of such films as Time Bandits and Tron, has joined the regular cast. Supporting actors in the series have included Gabriel Wolfe and Philip Maddock, well known for their numerous parts in Doctor Who, Gareth David Lloyd, lately of Torchwood, and the one and only Brian Blessed. In today's show, I'm talking to the series writer and producer Simon Barnard and CD cover artist Garen Ewing about the Scarifier genre-crossing narratives, the series' love of old science fiction and horror, and the use of iconic actors in new serialised roles. To give you a flavour of the series, here's an extract from the first Scarifier story, The Nazad Conspiracy. Do your house guests normally jump out of the window, Professor Dunning? Uh, Not normally, no, Inspector. Detective Inspector Lionheart. And you say the victim was acting distressed? Oh, he was in a terrible state. Poor fellow. Uh, Kept saying that people were after him. But no indication of who? No, none at all. And he jumped from here? Yes, just where you're standing. But it wasn't the fall that killed him? No. It was the passing tram? I believe it was, yes. And the startled cart horse didn't help much either? No, I wouldn't have thought so. So what time would you say our visitor woke you? Oh, he didn't. I I was reading a story to some of my students. Uh, What kind of story? A ghost story. One of my own. At Christmas? Oh, it's a little tradition we have. Every year I have some of the boarders round here on Boxing Day. Don't they mind? Mind? You casting a dark cloud over their Christmas festivities. I'm talking to Simon Barnard, creator of The Scarifiers, which has existed as a series of audio releases on CD and also broadcast on Radio 7 Stroke 4 Extra, and now also a comic book. How did the initial project come about? Well, I was working at Radio 1 um, for many years as a documentary producer, and more and more drama started sort of creeping into my documentaries. Mm. Uh, or dramatisation type. Yeah, lots of the uh, lots of the links. I ended up getting actors to do the links, and they were sort of dramatised. So, so, for example, there was there was one documentary about the British film industry where I ended up having uh, somebody playing Kenneth Williams, uh, somebody uh, actually the same actor playing Frankie Howard, mm. and uh, so the whole thing was framed like that. And it was all a bit, uh, you know, not really target Radio One audience, and all all a bit strange for Radio One. Mm. And so there wasn't really anything I could do further with my interest in drama at Radio 1 mm. so I started basically so I just hired a studio wrote a script hired the actors and went and made the scary fires yeah <laughs> and it's 
obviously infused with a love of Doctor Who in the sense that the two main characters of the original series are Terry Malloy, a.k.a. Davros, and Nicholas Courtney, a.k.a. Brigadier Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But the plots are more of a kind of pre-Quatermask, Nigel Neal, M.R. James-type story, but with a more comedic twist. Did you feel that that was a kind of storytelling that was missing from radio drama? Well, to be honest, I mean, the, the choice of actors mm. was pretty much a, an attempt to piggyback on the success of Big Finish because Big Finish did something fairly extraordinary mm. in that they created a market for audio drama where there yeah. wasn't one before among young people. Mm. Um, radio 4 broadcasts perfectly good radio drama, but it's for a certain age group and it's about a certain type of thing. There's not very much science fiction or horror or genre-related stuff. So, so employing Nick Courtney and Terry Malloy were, and calling the company Cosmic Hobo was mm, entirely a, a <laughs> blatant attempt to steal some of their audience. Which, uh, and it sort of worked, you know. Initially, it got us a bit of attention. Um, and then maybe a year later, it started being broadcast on uh, Radio 7, as it was then. Mm. And, and pipping big finish to the post there. Well, yes. <laughs> and that brought us a whole new audience, and our audience is very different. I mean, yeah. we, we get lots of letters from, um, you know, fathers who play it to their kids while driving the car to mm. sort of middle-aged academics who listen mm. to it. So it's not the typical Doctor Who audience. And I've completely forgotten what <laughs> your just was. Just whether you felt... Well, you've kind of answered it in a way, you know, saying that it's a different audience to Doctor Who, about whether you felt it was kind of storytelling that was almost missing from radio drama at the time. Yeah, um, well, that's the other thing. I mean, to be honest, I didn't listen to a lot of radio drama. <laughs> so, but yes, I mean, basically, I, I just did something that interested me. And I and on television, I've I've always liked Quatermass and um, and and to read, you know, like M. R. James and sort of I like stuff that's that sort of foggy London, uh, foggy London streets. Yeah, uh, probably, you know, murderers. Maybe Victorian England, you know that sort of all that <laughs> all sort of all the all the good stuff. Yeah. So basically, I just wrote something about that, and the reason it ended up actually being in the 1930s mm. rather than Victorian England was because of the, Steve, the story demanded it. Because in the first story, it's about Rasputin coming back from the dead, and Rasputin died in 1917, I think, so or, or 16, 16 or so, you know, 16, died in 1916. And he wrote a letter, and this is true, he did write a letter saying, if I die in 25 years, I'll be back. And I made it 20 years, I sort of budged it slightly, but so that's why it happened in 1936, okay. the first one. And, and that's the only reason. But in fact, the 30s turned out to be a great era because, for, for it, because you've got that sort of post-First World War spiritual, mm. spiritualism thing. Alistair Crowley. You've got Alistair, yeah. Alistair Crowley, you've got... Uh, Harry Price, a sort of famous ghost hunter. I mean, people mm. did genuinely believe this stuff, and so it's a ripe for doing a sort of in the interwar period is probably the best period, I think, for doing a supernatural detective series. Unfortunately, like I said, Nicholas Courtney died after your fifth release, yeah. and so you introduced David Warner as a new character. Was it easy to get him on board? I guess he'd already become a bit of a big Finnish regular, so in terms of audio dramas released straight to CD, it wasn't an unknown format for him. No, I mean, his only stipulation was that he didn't want to play a villain, because okay. he's played a lot of villains. <laughs> um, I mean, what happened was we knew Nick was ill and he'd been um, and he'd had a few scares for a few last few years before he died he'd had various things happen to him but we sort of so 
we sort of talked about whether to carry it on, you know, when when and if the inevitable happened. But then when when he when he did finally pass away, like the, his character Lionheart, his story wasn't really told. It wasn't sort of properly finished off. He just he would have just vanished. So we thought we'd just do one more story, and that required the casting of a new lead, or, or just for that story, uh, who would who would be Lionheart's sort of best mate in the police force. And then a friend of a friend knew David Warner, and David Warner was... I mean, we, we use the same studios as Big Finish, so um, it was no great jump for, for David Warner to agree to work with us. And uh, we, uh, I had lunch with him, and as I said, he, he's, the only thing he said was, as long as he's not a villain, it's fine, you know. Mm. And he's, then he, uh, he read the script on the bus on the way home, because he always gets the bus everywhere. And he sort of, so if you're ever on a bus in London, watch out, <laughs> David Warner may be sat behind you. <laughs> And he, he loved the script, and we sort of carried on from there, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, he does say he really enjoys... I mean, it's fantastic to work with him. He's such a... You know, he's obviously got a huge pedigree as an actor and worked doing Hamlet and mm. Lear and so on. But I think the thing... What he's told us, the thing he likes most is just doing these things for either Big Finish or us and just getting the bus down to, <laughs> to the studio and doing a whole play in a day. I mean, mm. he, and he really... And the scarifies is funny. He doesn't do that much comedy. So I think he, he has a ball. Although there obviously won't be any more adventures for Lionheart on audio, you've started doing a Scarifies comic, which is an adaptation of the first story, but should it prove popular, you'll do new adventures set in between the existing ones? That's, that's the idea, yeah, if we, if we sell enough copies, you know, so anyone who's listening. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, so the first one is just to, to establish the... Basic, so what happened was I bumped into an artist called Simon Gurr um, at a convention in Bristol, and I sort of mooted the idea of doing a Scarifies comic, and it just went from there. I mean, if I hadn't met him, then we probably wouldn't have done it. And um, I saw his artwork for an adaptation he'd done of Day of the Triffids, which was black and white artwork, and looked like it would be appropriate for the time period. So Simon went away, and he produced a few sketches, and we took it from there. And what he's done in the comic is he's come up with a sort of newsprint effect, and taken he's taken Garen uh, Ewing has done the artwork to the CDs, and uh, in a you might be able to help me with, with this. What's it called Ligne Claire? Yeah, clear clear line. Clear, clear line. Clear <laughs> line. The Tintin. He's done the Tintin style, <laughs> and um, Simon sort of took inspiration from there, and also put this sort of newsprint effect on it, and came up with something quite special. I think. I think. I mean, it's far far better than. I could have imagined. And he sort of captures the characters of Lionheart and Dunning, the two, the two leads, um, re- really well. I mean, he, take, he takes them away slightly from Nicholas Courtney and Terry Malloy, and they, they become... He sort of depicts the characters rather than the actors mm. and does a damn fine job, I think. <laughs> and how did you find the experience of writing comics? Because it's obviously different to writing a script that you know is going to be read out you have to think about page structure about panels the way the artist is going to interpret it was that a difficult process or in a way because you'd already found the artist that you liked did you work in what's supposedly called the marvel method where it's more of a collaboration between writer and artist well i'm i found it really difficult (laughs) (laughs) Uh, far more difficult than i thought because Mm. i would have thought you know adapting something when you've already got a script would be easy but um, trying, but obviously radio, a lot of it is dialogue, mm. and and to make that interesting mm. on the page, you have to strip away a lot of the dialogue mm. and you know tell stuff, to 
well, you, you know, you've got a whole different palette to work with. You, you're yeah. telling stuff with pictures instead. So I found it actually really, really difficult. Mm. And I, I sort of sketched everything out with stick figures before mm. I sent it to Simon because <laughs> it was the only way I could visualise what it would yeah. sort of look like. And then Simon took that and, and completely changed it again mm. to make it good. <laughs> I mean, saying so the stick fig with a gun is Lionheart right <laughs> well yeah I, yeah I, there was a stick there was a stick fig with a moustache and a stick fig with glasses and that's how you could tell yeah so basically Simon sort of t- took it apart and took mm. and kept the good bits and then mm. th- threw away the you know the bits that were a bit pedestrian because he's got experience in this sort of thing and, mm. and I think but you know people it moves really quickly this the comic it, you know I do read a few comics here and there and sometimes they can move quite slowly, whereas this, essentially for purely because I was paying for it, and <laughs> I wanted to pay for 32 pages, <laughs> and so I crammed everything I could into 32 pages. And it could possibly do with a couple more pages, mm. but I think it sort of works as it is, and people have read it as it's sort of the, the first thing people say is it really the story really cracks along, you know, mm. which is fitting for a something that's sort of a homage to 1930s adventure series. Mm. You mentioned Garen Ewing, who does the covers of the CDs and is also doing the cover of the comics. How did you first start collaborating with him? Yeah, so Garen does something called the Rainbow Orchids, which I'm sure all your... Has he been on your show? Yes. Okay, well, uh, well yeah, so he's, he's been doing that for about 10 years or something, as far as I know. And basically he had a website, and I stumbled across the website, and I was looking for something that would be distinct from Big Finish's cover design because they use a lot of photo montages and uh, photoshopping and I just wanted something that, was, that would be different and I stumbled across it and it was perfect because it's, it's almost the right time period so Tintin, you know and, um, and actually it, it helped after, after the first CD came out it sort of established those characters in people's minds and, it, and people knew what they looked like and it gave the whole thing an identity so between some of the actors' performances and Garen's artwork I think that really established what we should be doing for Scarifiers, the audio series, from number two onwards. Okay. Are you a big comic book reader? I grew up with Eagle yeah. um, and 2000 AD, mm. and then I moved, uh, I moved into uh, Hellblazer when I was a teenager, and I got the first sort of Jamie Delano run of Hellblazer, so like the first 40 issues or whatever it was. And after that, I mean, and Watchmen and, uh, you know, all those Dark Knight, yeah. you know, all that, that sort of era, um, sort of late 80s era of comics. Then after that, I sort of lost interest a bit. And I think Hell, Hell, Hellblazer, for me, sort of went off the boil. Some, some, of the, some of the writing got a bit too blunt and obvious. And, and, and Jamie Delano had a, uh, it was, you know, it was, they were believable characters and they, and they weren't just... Cockneys, you know, all right. <laughs> so I sort of went off it a bit, and and I've dipped into it now and again. But basically, no, I'm not. I'm not a huge comics fan. I mean, I'd I'd like to be, um, but yeah, I sort of did the Scarifiers without knowing that much about comics. <laughs> it's a fairly, fairly foolish thing to do. Not at all. Because I mean, it's interesting. You know, having spoken about the Eagle, the fact that you're doing the Scarifiers comic in the classic American comic book format rather than, say, the larger British magazine size. Was that more due to economies of scale and the fact that, I suppose, if you want to sell a comic to a comic shop these days, they probably want the American format? I just wanted to make a comic in the way I was accustomed to buying comics myself. Yeah. Um, which, you know, and I've become aware since that there you can get all kinds of formats of comics, but I sort of thought, this is what they look like. So that's, that's why it looks like it does. 
How has the uh, response been to the first issue? Can we expect a second one in the near future? The critical response has been fantastic. I mean, we've got so we've got so many good reviews from so many um, <clears throat> you know websites and magazines and so on. But the I'm finding out about the world of independent comics as I go, mm. and it's so the intention was always to release part one and then sort of basically find out about comics from there on and and sort of release and then from issue two release mm. it on a more regular mm. schedule and yeah so so there is a long there's been a long gap between parts one and two but part two will arrive because i mean it has to to finish that story mm. what i'd really really like to do and I'm not sure if anyone is interested, yeah. but uh, is to collaborate with somebody else or, or try and get it published by somebody else. Because mm. For like the graphic novel collection? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, as far as I can work out with the world of independent comics and distribution, it seems to involve um, schlepping around loads of comic shops with a bundle of comics and uh, saying, would you like some comics? And then going back a few months later when they've probably forgotten who you are anyway. Mm. And um, and that's the main thing that surprised me about comics that there's no there's no proper independent distribution system that I've come across. Yeah, and it's un, you know and it would have been easier if I just released the whole thing as a graphic novel, I think, you know, and, and released it sort of as a book. But you know, but issue two will come, and then we'll take it from there. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next, you'll hear my interview with Garen Ewing, best known as a graphic novelist whose Tintin-inspired series, The Adventures of Julius Chancer has just concluded its opening narrative, The Rainbow Orchid, now available in three volumes from Egmont, and I'm talking to Garen about his process of creating the CD art and covers featuring cartoon likenesses of stars Nicholas Courtney, Terry Malloy, David Warner and others, which grace each release. Before that, here's an extract from the Scarifier serial, The Horror of Loch Ness. Is someone there? I'll say there is, eh? You! Identify yourself or I'll give you another dose of this ore! Uh, uh, Bunter! Bunter? Uh, yes, Montague Bunter, Monster Hunter. Oh, well, hello, weather all, old chap. Fancy seeing you here. Is that a raft you're sitting on? Uh, yes. Hmm. Well, I think you can put the broomstick down now. I hope this isn't something to do with you, Weatherall. Um, me? Hmm. Sainted aunt, what is that? Oh, best foot forward, Vivian. That's it. Oh. Which way? Which way? Blast this damn fog! Most definitely not that way. This way then. I'm talking to Garen Ewing about designing the covers for The Scarifiers. The Scarifiers is a comedy, horror, British uh, drama series starring two alumni of Doctor Who. And the cover designs and indeed the images on the CD themselves are done in your traditional clear line style. How did the association with The Scarifiers come about? Um, that's a while ago, I'm trying to remember. Um, well, Simon just got in touch with me. I think he'd, he'd probably seen the Rainbow Orchid mm. and thought that style would fit. You know, it's very much the same kind of atmosphere and yeah. um, a Scarify set in the 1930s. Um, so you've got that kind of classic pulp sort of thing. 
So I imagine it was just that sort of association, really. Mm. Um, but as far as I know, he just, as far as I remember, he just got in touch with me out of the blue, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, asked if I'd be interested. Had you listened to any um, Doctor Who spin-off radio dramas at that point? No. <laughs> uh, I was aware of them because my brother was a big Doctor Who fan. Ah. And I think he may have had a couple, or maybe I just read about them in the fan magazines. Mm. Um, but no, no, um, I wasn't really overly familiar with them. Um, and I, I didn't actually hear the Scarifiers. I don't think, I, I think for the first one I got the script. Mm. And I was also sent the music, which I thought was very good. So I knew it was going to be a quality production. Mm. Um, so, and that was quite inspiring to help me get off the right foot, as it were. Mm. I mean, in terms of creating a CD cover, in particular for a drama, I guess you have to find an iconic moment from the story and illustrate that. Was that entirely down to you listening to the story or reading the script, or did Simon suggest some ideas about what might be the cover image? Um, I, uh, no, it pretty much all comes from Simon. In, okay. in fact, I don't think I've, apart from having the script for the first one, I don't think I knew the story of the others apart from a summary from Simon. Mm. And he um, would often suggest two or three ideas. Mm. Um, for instance, um, there's giant robots in this one, <laughs> um, maybe a church in the background, that kind of thing. Um, so really it's been sketches based on, on, on what he wants. Mm. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I, I don't know if you've used celebrities for life drawing in the past, but obviously one of the things about doing the covers for the Scarifiers is it has to be recognisable representations of the actors. Um, was that an easy job for you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's not one of my strong points. And um, um, I've, and early on, Simon said, it doesn't have to look exactly like mm. them, just kind of be recognisable as them, but they're their own characters, which I was happy with. Mm. Um, I, I think that perhaps he's got He's, he's <laughs> I might be being unfair here, but he's got a bit more critical of, um, of, of how they look, you know, not yeah. being close enough, um, which is, is good. It drives me on and to try and get that perfection. And it's been quite hard because, mm. as I say, it's not a natural thing for me. And sometimes I've, I've gone through quite a few versions of the faces yeah. until he's happy. Um, uh, one of them I drew, I covered a sheet of A3 in... Um, it's Nicholas Courtney, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in his face, from uh, some of them look more like Saddam Hussein, than, <laughs> but I just sent them to him, say, you know, pick one. Because <laughs> uh, um, I guess it's kind of requiring you to become a caricaturist, you know, melding your style with a degree of um, recognisable representation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a little bit jealous actually of Simon Gurr, who did the comic recently, mm. who's really good at drawing likenesses and and also with a lot of character which is something I'm not so good at. So um, I think he's done a really good job on that. Mm. So I still struggle away with my sort of clear line version of them. I've been quite happy, especially with um, Professor Dunning. Mm. I've been quite good at him. Uh, of course, now there's a new um, actor, um, whose name I'm going to forget, Jonathan. David Warner. Oh, David Warner, not Jonathan, <laughs> anyone. David Warner, how can I forget David Warner? If you're listening to this, David Warner, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yes, and he's uh, incredibly difficult, but Simon's been happy with the three versions I've done of him so far mm. I think that might be because I've been so nervous <laughs> I've really put a lot of effort into him and actually um, uh, Dunning's been the one who's I've okay. gone slightly off the boil on <laughs> I mean I suppose the irony with um, Dunning is that 
fewer people know what Terry Malloy looks like because if you think of him, you think of him as Davros. Well, uh, both uh, Nicholas Courtney and um, uh, and David Warner are obviously famous for what they look like as well. That's a good point. Yeah, and I also think um, I mean early on, I gave um, Lionheart and Dunning um, their facial hair was quite different from their actual people, mm. so they were slightly different characters. Um, and also, I think perhaps Simon working with them in the studio mm. obviously knows their faces a lot better than I do. I've, I've got reference photos. But I think they've, they've come out okay. Um, you know, and they're, they're becoming their own sort of characters. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah I, think, I think it's quite... We look at them all, mm. however many there are now. Uh, yeah, eight? eight? So yeah. About eight. eight. We agree on that, so that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite a nice set. And mm. there's a, the style works well across all of them, I think. Mm. You mentioned the comic um, because Simon and, and Simon, yes, yes. Simon, and Simon. <laughs> Simon and Simon um, have just done the first Scarifiers comic, which is a loose adaptation of the first CD. Um, you've contributed the cover to the comic as well. If they continue doing it in that format, would you like to do some interior art as well, or are you happy just to stick to the the covers? Um, well, I actually think Simon Gersh should do the cover as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, the cover was really just the artwork mm. from the first CD sure. and just redesigned. Um, um, so I'm happy for it all to be in Simon and Simon's uh, hands, really, because um, I'm quite busy with the Rainbow Orchid mm. and, and I'm quite slow at doing comics. I'm not fast. Um, so um, and I think having its own identity, I don't know if Simon will... Um, keep adapting the stories or, or mm. if he'll... I think he's planning one. new, new stories. stories set in between. Yeah, you know. so... Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to be involved, but also as a fan, which I am, <laughs> um, of, of both the Scarifiers and of Simon Gurr's artwork, I'd love to see him doing the covers. I think he's really good at them. So, you know, there wouldn't be any uh, uh, jealousy or anything. I love doing the CD covers, so mm. I feel as though, you know, maybe, maybe you should have a go at that. Mm. <laughs> Thinking of your other projects, the uh, complete Rainbow Orchid is now out. The next story you're going to be working on, will it be a new adventure of Julius Chance or are you going to work on another project in the meantime just so that you can kind of stretch your artistic legs as it were? Yes, no, um, I'm doing more Julius Chance now. I'm doing a short story of about 20 pages um, which will be appearing next year. I I can't really say where yet because contracts aren't signed although they're as good as, (laughs) but I better not. and um, then I'm going to be doing a longer story of about 70 pages, which will be one book, and that will um, also be published. So that looking at probably, I guess with publishing, two or three years away for the longer book. Okay. But the 20-page story will hopefully be out uh, next spring, maybe, or a little bit after. Fantastic. So yes, still going on. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. For more information about Garen's work, please go to garenewing.co.uk. That's G-A-R-E-N-E-W-I-N-G. Where you can buy Garen's self-published companion to the Rainbow Orchid, showing his behind-the-scenes work on the series. Scarifier's producers Cosmic Hobo have recently changed the name of their production company to Gafflebab, written by Simon Barnard and others at www.bafflegab.co.uk. That's B-A-F-F-L-E-G-A-B dot Reality Check was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch.
All extracts from the Scarifiers copyright 2013 Baffle Gab Productions. And there'll be a new episode online shortly. To conclude tonight's episode, here's an extract from the latest Scarifiers serial, The Thirteen Hollows. Thanks for listening. These objects of yours, we've had reports that they've... Well, they've come to life. Oh, yes, yes, they'll do that all right. Objects don't normally come to life. Do they not? No, no, I I suppose not. Well, these ones do. That's why I'm guarding them, I expect. Guarding them? Is that what you call it? So, what happened to me in your larder just now was you guarding them. Phantasms, nothing more. Did I offer you some tea?